Well, listen, uh, so we're going to talk today, uh, as Dan said, about this guy named Josiah, the fourth name in this series that we're calling Origins. And if you've been with us through Origins, you know it's had two parts. So the first part was earlier in the fall where we talked about our origin stories as a people of faith. We talked about four critical concepts to to being a person of faith, a person who is pursuing the God of the Bible. And that is the idea of we live in a created world. We live uh, in in a world that is fallen. We live in a world that calls us out to a life of faith. And we live in a covenant relationship with God. So those are the things that set us apart in general, the concepts that set us apart. But then in this iteration of origins, we're talking about four people that made Jesus, in a sense, who he was, right? So in Matthew chapter 1, there's this genealogy of Jesus, and it lists all his ancestors. And these four names are in that list. And if you guys remember, last week I I put out this idea that Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Jesus is like Jesus' resume, Matthew wants to say that, in a sense, Jesus is applying for the job of, anybody remember what it was? The job of Messiah. And essentially, Matthew's saying, here's what qualifies this man, Jesus, to be the Messiah. So he has all these names, you know, and Messiah means anointed one. It means the king. It means the leader of God's people. These four names appear in it, and some of them are surprising names. Jacob is a guy that goes all back, all the way back to the uh, Genesis story. And his story takes up an awful lot of space in Genesis. But Jacob has uh, character issues. He's got a problem with lying, manipulating. He's successful as a businessman, but he has brokenness in his family that he has to deal with. You know, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, Rahab is a prostitute and not an ethnic member of God's family. She shelters some Jewish men and helps them conquer Jericho, but she's a surprising entry in a person that you're like, hey, I'm here to be king. Well, who do you have? Let me see your resume. Well, my my great-grandmother was a prostitute. Um, I got got this guy in my history. He was a a liar and a manipulator. Okay, well, don't don't call us. We'll, We'll call you. And last week, we talked about this lady, Ruth, who was from Moab, an outsider, and, and a person who lives out the, the ideas that God wants for us, but is, is not squarely in the center of like God's people, right? And, and we talked about maybe Jesus learned from these people how to be a Messiah, you know, to how, what it means to have people in your background that like aren't the cookie cutter Christian people like Rahab, or what it means when you have somebody in your, in your background that like, like Ruth that loves the outsider. Maybe Jesus learned how to love the outsider from these people. Well, today we're going to look on the other side of that equation because we're going to look at a guy named Josiah. And Josiah, like, is the guy that you want on your resume. You, you want this guy in your genealogy because he's a king and he's a good king. And Jesus could be like, you know why I'm fit to be the Messiah? Josiah. So we're going to look at his story and just a couple things that, that we could take away from that. And his story is found in, in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of, of 2 Kings, uh, which is about 20% into the Bible if you have one here. We're going to be reading from chapter 22 and then later 23. So uh, the scriptures will be on the screen. So the story starts this way. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. 
His mother was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah from Bozkath, represent Bozkath. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor, David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. So that's the way the story begins. It's very matter of fact. Look, Josiah was, Josiah was eight years old. I don't know who puts an eight-year-old in charge of a kingdom, but that's another story. He's eight years old, reigns in Jerusalem for 31 years. This is about 640 B.C., okay? Um, and this is an interesting way to start this story because if you've ever read the book of first and second kings first and second chronicles a you get a gold star for like bible perseverance because i don't know if you guys know this if you've ever read the bible through and anybody read the bible through in a year or do something like that first and second chronicles and first and second kings are almost word for word repeating each other which like i don't i'm no author but I'm like, boy, that's really hard reading. Like you just get through these first two books of the Bible, First and Second Chronicles, and then you start First and Second Kings. You're like, wait a minute, haven't I read all this before? Yes, you have. And it's just a, a list, a list of, of the kings of Israel. And most of them, I got to tell you, start off bad. So king after king after king of Israel basically starts off, look, this guy was king and he was a rotten king. But we're told in this passage this guy did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor, who? David, who is the prototypical king. This is the guy that you want to emulate if you are a Jewish king. So we're told that he's getting this right uh, and he gets it right for 31 years. Now listen to the where the story goes. Verse three, in the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and the grandson of Meshulam. I should get extra points for reading all these names this morning. The court secretary to the temple of the Lord, he told him, go to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him count the money the gatekeepers have collected from the people at the Lord's temple. Entrust this money to the men assigned to supervise the temple's restoration. Then they can use it to pay workers to repair the temple of the Lord. They will need to hire carpenters, builders, and masons. Also, have them buy the timber and the finished stone needed to repair the temple, but don't require the construction supervisors to keep account of the money they receive for their honest and trustworthy men. So what's going on here? Uh, what's going on here is that um, they're repairing the temple, which in and of itself doesn't sound like that big of a deal unless you know what the temple is for Jewish people. You see, like a guy named, Sol a guy named Solomon, who's King David's son, he builds a temple in Jerusalem. And the, and the temple is where God, his presence is. And it is not just the center of religious life in, in Judaism. It's not just the center of their spiritual world because the ancient Near East has this mingling of politics and, and spirituality and culture. The temple is the center of everything in, uh, for Jewish people. It's the center of their religion, it's the center of their politics, and it's the center of their culture. And they let it fall into disrepair. Now, just think about that. Think about, like, if we just kind of said, okay, you know, we have this city in Washington, D.C. It's supposed to be the center of, our, center of our country politically, but, like, nobody takes care of the Lincoln Memorial. or No one takes care of the Vietnam Wall. And so people go, and they're like, man, this place looks like trash. And they're like, oh, yeah, we forgot to take care of that. 
This is what was happening with the temple. They had let it fall into disrepair. Josiah goes, you know what? There's something wrong with this. Let's fix it. So they start working on the temple. And then listen to what happens. Uh, verse 8. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Not a book of the law, the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan and he read it. Shaphan went to the king and reported, look, the officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and the supervisors at the temple. Shaphan also, also told the king, um, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll, a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Then he gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and Asiah, the king's personal advisor. He said, go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah. Inquire about the words written in this scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this scroll. We've not been doing everything it says we must do. I think a better way to put that is we haven't been doing anything it says we must do. Why? Because they lost it. They lost the scroll of the book of the law, which means they lost this. The law for, for, for the Jews is the Pentateuch, first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In, that, in those five books, the Jews believed, look, this is the essence of how we live in relationship to God, and how we relate, how we treat each other. And they lost it. They lost it. And let me unpack this a little bit. There are no other copies, right? I mean, there's copies, but this is it. It's not, well, let's Google search it. I'm sure, I know we have a physical copy. We'll find, no, they lost the law. They lost it not just the building that was falling into repair, they lost the heart of who they were as a people. So Josiah is reacting very strongly to this. And uh, we're actually gonna go to the next chapter because he decides to do something about it. And this is what he decides to do. The king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem and the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem along with the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. And there the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul. And in this way, he confirmed that all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll and all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So they find it, Josiah's heartbroken, flabbergasted at what they had become. And so they go and read it. And then Josiah basically says, look, we're having a hard reset. Control, alt, delete. Because we have drifted. And so to summarize, what he does is he says, okay, we've got to, we've got to reclaim and recenter our land and our people. Um, 
basically he goes out and he, he surveys the land literally, not just the, the spiritual land, but he literally looks around and he says, man, there's lots of stuff going on here that not, is not right. Um, if you've ever studied the history of religion, you know that humanity has this tendency to look at mountains or high places, what the Bible calls them, and to say, um, we want to go build altars on high places because to the ancient mind, a high place is closer to the sky, which is closer to the gods. And when Josiah looks around, he sees high places that have altars and these things called uh, poles, Asherah poles, all around them. And he's like, wait a minute. God says that, A, he's not just found on mountains. Our God is found everywhere, and particularly in this temple that we're rebuilding. But we've got people building altars all over the place. We've got to get rid of the altars. Then he actually looks around. And he's like, oh, my gosh. Some of my ancestors built altars to other gods, gods named Baal and a god named Moloch and other guys. They've actually built altars to these other gods in the temple. And I'm so Josiah had this moment. He's like, you know what? I don't have a master's degree and I didn't go to seminary. But something tells me that an altar to another God in the temple of Jerusalem, not so good. So he gets rid of all these things. And he summons people to back to a, a starting point that says, look, we have to reset and start over. And so he does it. And then, the, and then there's last sort of iteration to this story, a last little passage that I want to kind of point out to you in, in uh, 2 Kings 23, verse 21. King Josiah then issued this order to all the people. You must celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as required in this book of the covenant. There had not been a Passover celebration like that since the time when the judges ruled in Israel, nor throughout all the years of the kings of Israel and Judah. Generations have not celebrated the Passover. This Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem in the 18th year of King Josiah's reign. So why is that important? He finds in the book of the covenant, the book of the law, look, uh, the story of when God's people are enslaved in Exodus, in Egypt. God sets them free and he says, you know, the way that you have to remember who you are as a people and the way that you remember my goodness and the way that you remember that I'm a graceful God, a freedom God, is you celebrate this thing called the Passover and you do it every year. Except they lost the book of the law. So they hadn't been celebrating Passover. And I think what you, what you get when you add up this equation of a, of a temple that is, that is junked up, of, of, God, of, of, temp, of uh, altars to other gods all over the country, and of a forgotten ritual that gets at the core of who you are as a people, I think you basically look like, Josiah looks around and says, my people have forgotten entirely who they are. Because if you study anything about culture, you know that culture tells its story And people are identified by the stories they tell, the buildings they build, and the rituals that they take part in. And they've lost all of those things. So Josiah very literally cleans house, right? It's a great story. Um, And Jesus, um, Jesus 
plays this out in his life, right? Because uh, I, I said that, that Matthew is trying to convince you that Jesus is the Messiah. And do you know that one of the things that the Messiah had to do was to take care of the temple? In Jewish thought, they said when the Messiah comes, he's going to make sure the temple is functioning correctly. Partly because they know that the kings of old did that. So he said, man, Josiah did that. He took care of the temple. When the Messiah comes, he's going to do that. And so in Jesus' life, in all four of the Gospels, we're told that eventually Jesus goes to the temple. And he looks around and he looks and he said, you know what? This temple needs a hard reset. And he clean, it's called cleansing the temple. And essentially by doing that, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah because I own this place now. It's made for me. And we're going to get it back to doing the things that it's supposed to be doing. And so part of me goes, for Jesus' origin story, I think that if Jesus knew about Josiah and he knew Josiah's story, Jesus would like, yeah, as a Messiah, I got to do what my ancestor Josiah did. I need to show up and I need to reset my country and I had to reset my people and point them back towards the way that God wants us to go. I think that's a really, really uh, compelling story. But... Uh, as I was preparing for this, something else spoke to me uh, from Josiah's story. And, and uh, I want, I'd, I'd like to ask you guys just entertain this thought that I had. Because there's something really amazing about who Josiah is and what he does. Um, you see, Josiah, the fact that he's a good king is kind of a miracle. If you know anything about the monarchy of, of Israel, you know that the bad kings vastly, vastly outnumber the good kings. They're a handful of people. In fact, Josiah's father and grandfather, a guy named Manasseh and Amon, are considered to be the worst and some of the most evil kings in Israel's history. Manasseh, in particular, his grandfather, you see, I told you about, you know, uh, Josiah looks out and he sees all these altars to these other gods. And one of the gods, his name is Baal. And another god, his name is Moloch. Well, Moloch was a particularly nasty god. Because you know what, you know what Moloch liked for sacrifice? Kids. Children. And the scriptures tell us that uh, Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, said, if Moloch wants a child sacrifice, I will give him one. And Moloch burns his own child. And Ammon, we're told, is kind of the same way. Kills people, murders people, both of them reckon, recognized as evil kings. And the thing that started to speak to me about Josiah's story is how you get from Manasseh and Ammon to a righteous eight-year-old. And it made me start to think about like, you know, Josiah, I, I mean, I'm using my imagination here. I don't know if it was finding the scroll. I don't know what it was in Josiah's life that made him wake up and go, you know what? I've got this in my background. I've got a father who did this and a grandfather who did that. And as a father myself, I can say, maybe he looked and said, someday I'm going to have kids I don't know what my kids are going to do. I, I, in my mind, I think that Josiah just said, you know what? I got ancestors on one side. I got descendants on another side. But you know who I'm responsible for? 
me. Me. And I think he looks up and he says, he says, my family, my family zigged. The whole culture around me is zigging. And everything because of that says, Josiah, you zig too. But Josiah says, thanks a lot, I'll zag. And he makes a right turn. And it started speaking to me about what it means to take responsibility for our story of faith. What does it mean to say, look, I've got... Um, either this in the culture or I've got this in my family or I've got this in my friends and I've got maybe this coming after me and I, but, but I can't control this and I can't control that. But God's tell, calling me to take responsibility for my own self. I think there's something so compelling in that because Josiah just steps up and he says, I'm going to do the right thing. There's a word. Um, there's a there's a word in the New Testament that Jesus uses, and I used to hate this word, man. Um, he, in, in in Matthew and in Mark, when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, "It's time for me to start my ministry," anybody know what the first thing that Jesus says is? He says, "Repent." Anybody know this word? Anybody like this word? <laughs> I grew up in the South. I grew up in Texas. Repent was a word for fundamentalist, fundamentalist televangelists, and people showed up on my college campuses, usually associated with the word fornicators. Repent, fornicators. And I was like, whoa, we're all for Like, what a great word. What? <laughs> and I was like, I, that word, I, I, was, I was always so burdened by that word. Then as I got, I got older and I started studying the Greek and I started learning the, the, the breadth and the story of the scriptures and I found out that repent, the Greek word for repent is this. It's metanoia. Noia means essentially the way you think. And meta in this association means to change. So when Jesus shows up and he says, look, repent. And in Mark he says, look, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom's at hand Repent. It doesn't mean to, to clean your moral house. I mean, you, you have to readjust your life in light of who Jesus is. But in essence, he's saying, when you start this journey, he says, look, um, the time's fulfilled. The kingdom is here. Change the way you think about reality. And I think some point, Josiah in his life decided to change the way he thought about reality. He said, it doesn't matter what my story was coming into this. It doesn't matter what my story and legacy will be going out of it. All I have is the time allotted me right now. Anybody know exactly what I'm talking about? Can the preacher get an amen? <laughs> and, I wanna, and I wanna just throw out there to you that there has to come a point in your life where you have to change the way you think. Because ultimately, um, I wanna tell you what God's calling you to is to take responsibility for your faith journey. It doesn't matter what you were handed. It doesn't matter the legacy you will leave. I mean, it does, but you can't really control it. I mean, I, I have great desires for my children spiritually, but they're gonna make their own decisions. You know who I'm called to take responsibility for? Eric Case, right? Um, 
And I just thought, I just thought I'd t- kind of tell you, like, like what the, how this played itself out in my life. You know, I, I've told you guys, I grew up in church. My parents handed me a legacy of faith, right? We were, uh, you've heard me say it, we were fifth two back, right side people every Sunday, right? But eventually, I, I started, I started to, it wasn't enough anymore. God was calling me out of that space. And he called me into some pretty crazy things, you know? So for a while, even though my parents were handing me this legacy of faith, I realized that what they were handing me, I needed stronger rails, right? I needed boundaries. Because for better or for worse, my parents, uh, their boundary was like love everybody, which is a good boundary. But in junior high, I needed a little bit more. So this is kind of funny to me. I was hanging out with some buddies probably in sixth grade. And we were having a party and a sleepover. And I don't know why we were such boring individuals, but somebody's like, hey, let's, I got this cassette tape of this preacher preaching. Let's listen to it. I had a very strange childhood. So I listened to this preacher for like an hour and a half unload on the evils of rock and roll music. And I mean, I was in junior high and I was pretty, I was pretty, uh, influenceable because we mo- most of us are in that faith. And man, I bought in. I was like, it's evil. And particularly, man, he was busting on Led Zeppelin. I don't know why. Well, I do know why. But uh, he was like, man, he was not down with the Led Zeppelin. And, uh, and I bought into it, man. And uh, my sister had given me a, a copy of Led Zeppelin 4 on vinyl. And I came home the next morning. My parents were like watching football in the living room. And I stormed into my bedroom. And I walked back out with the record. And they're like watching. I say, do you see this record, mom and dad? And they're like, uh-huh. And I'm like, it's evil. And I broke it. And, and they were like, whoa. <laughs> they were like, we don't break records in the case house, right? Because like my parents were kind of like, they're kind of like this, right? So that was a little. In, um, but I was looking for something more. And then as I went more into my faith journey, I, I, I discovered that, that what God was calling me out to next was something that was more passionate. I needed more passion. I needed music that was more intense, right? So I, I found churches that did that. And then I was looking for churches that spoke to the divisions that we have in this country racially and ethnically. And so I sought communities of faith that would speak to that, right? But the point is this. I was on my journey. I had to leave behind what I was handed. And go on my own journey. And what's ironic is like now, you know, there's a lot of my parents' faith that I really hold sacred, right? And there's even times that like I wish, you know, I like that silence and I like that peace of those old faith communities. But but my journey and my faith are mine now. And God is calling you to the same thing. Some of you guys are handed great legacies of faith. But eventually, those legacies might start to break down, and you need to repent or change your mind, even of the best things that you were handed, in order to say, this is my time, and this is my faith, right? Does that make sense to anybody? So I want to tell you, uh, um, before I leave, leave you guys here, um, uh, I want to tell you what's resonating with me now, because I've moved on. You know, my faith is a journey. And God just, God just keeps calling me out in something new. And, and so I want to tell you where I'm at now and, and what resonates with me now and what I feel like we are about now as a community of E3. Four scriptures in the New Testament that just pull me forward. First is John uh, chapter 10. Jesus says the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says my purpose is to give them a rich 
and satisfying life. Maybe in another translation, you've heard it, an abundant life. John chapter 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem on the last day, the climax of the festivals. Jesus stands up and shouts to the crowd, anyone who's thirsty, he says, come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Philippians 2. You must have the same attitude, Paul writes, that Christ Jesus had. Though he was in very equality with God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And then lastly, Ephesians. Paul says, I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he, God, will empower you, us, and me with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And he goes on, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how long, how wide, how high, and how deep his love is. Amen? That's what I'm pursuing now. That's the faith that I'm inhabiting now. And you know why? Let me break it down real, real simple for you. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a rich and satisfying life. Well, you know what? I've lived a pretty discontented life, not because of what life was given me, but because of the attitude of my heart. So if Jesus says, look, I got a way for you to be satisfied, sign me up. Jesus also says, look, I'm going to give you streams of living water coming out of you. Well, my spiritual life at times has been a stagnant swamp. And I imagine some of you guys have some stagnant swamps going on as well. If Jesus is offering me a stream of living water, an unending source of joy and love and peace and compassion, sign me up. Jesus wants to teach me that the essence of the spiritual life is humility because that's what he lived is a humble life, death on a cross. Come on. I want that. You know why? Because I can be a prideful, prideful man and nothing breaks the pride like humility. And he says, look, I pray that you know the depth and the breadth of God's love. Sign me up for that. You know why? Because I have a problem understanding love. I do. I don't get it sometimes. And I'm like, God, show me what it means to love people. Like, and show me what it means that you love me. This is where I'm at. And this is where this community longs to be and is moving towards as well. As the band comes up, I just want to challenge you to do something. And that's simply this. I just want you to ask yourself, am I living out my version of faith? Or am I living out a version of faith that was handed to me by somebody else. Because God's not going to ask those people like, hey, how, he's not going to ask you, um, well, how, how are your parents' faith? How was your parents' faith? He's not even going to ask you really like, how's your kid's faith? You know what he's going to ask you? Dude, where are you at? Can we take responsibility for our journey? 
Say, this is the time we have, this moment, this day. This uh, story in, in, in the Gospels. <laughs> Jesus does this with his disciples. He says, hey, who do people say that I am? And Peter speaks up for the disciples. And he's like, oh, man, they say, they say you're the Christ. They say you're this. They say you're that. And then you know what? Jesus stops them. And he says, no, 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 no. Okay. But who do you say? That's the same thing he's asking me. It's the same thing he's asking you. And all he wants us to do is say, here's who I say you are, Jesus. Even if you don't have it figured out. Jesus is like, all right, let's work with that. Guys, let's listen to these songs. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you.